you'd like to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're going to be looking at John chapter 11, verses 17 through 44. So John 11, 17 through 44, that's on page 897 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. John 11, 17 through 44. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Father, as we approach your holy and inerrant word this morning, we ask that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit so that we can see what you have revealed to us in your word about you, about your son, and about your revealed will for our life. So Father, we ask that you would help us see the, the true meaning of this passage and also how to best apply it as we follow our walk, following Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Off-roading is an increasingly popular sport. There are places in this country, especially out west in the national parks, where they have designated trails for off-road vehicles. There are places that, that kind of hug canyon walls or, or ford streams or, or let uh, just vehicles crisscross rocky, shrub-covered areas. But in most of these places, there are also warning signs. And, and they have some sort of, sort of sign that says, warning, off-road vehicle required. And so you're not supposed to take the, the Chevy Impala or the, the Toyota Camry on, on these trails. They just don't have the clearance for it. But even for serious off-roaders, if they take their vehicle off-road, they always have something called recovery gear. This is equipment to help them get unstuck if they get stuck on one of these trails. So this recovery gear would include things like a high-lift jack, it would include a tire repair kit, it would include traction boards, and of course, a winch, probably the most important piece of recovery gear. And the thing about the winch is that it can make the difference between remaining stuck or getting home at the end of the day. But it doesn't really do you any good unless that winch can be extended to a secure anchor point. It doesn't matter if it gets halfway there. It doesn't matter if it gets all the way there. It doesn't matter if it's rated for 13,000 pounds and has a heavy-duty hook on the end of a steel cable. It has to reach all the way or else it's useless. In John chapter 11, it's the same thing with belief in Jesus Christ. Halfway belief isn't going to cut it. Most of the way belief isn't enough. Not even almost all the way. No, Jesus requires all the way belief from his followers. And in this section of John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But before he does, we're going to see two examples of partway belief. Lazarus' two sisters are highlighted, Martha and Mary, in this passage. And two things are made clear. Number one, both sisters have partway belief. They, they can't get all the way to Jesus raising Lazarus. They, they just don't get there. And number two, it also is clear from the text that Jesus is not pleased with partway belief. 
We're also going to demystify the reason why Jesus wept in John 11.35. Spoiler alert, it's not because he was really, really sad that his friend died. That's not it. Of course, we're going to talk about what this seventh sign means in the context of, of the Gospel of John. And then finally, we're going to draw out application from this text. So we've got a lot on our plate this morning. Let's go ahead and get started. Let's read John 11, starting at verse 17. And it says this, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Our passage begins with Jesus arriving at Bethany. And this is after Jesus intentionally stayed away long enough to allow Lazarus to die. And John tells us that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And some other Jews had come out from Jerusalem to console Mary and Martha. 
Now, Jesus had raised others from the dead. If you're familiar with the New Testament and the other synoptic gospels, then you know that there were a couple other resurrections. Mark 5, 41 and 42, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Also, Luke 7, 14 and 15, Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. And both of these miracles had taken place in Galilee, which is up north, not, not down here, not right next to Jerusalem, but up north. And both of those resurrections had taken place relatively quickly after the person had died. So John's inclusion of these details, remember there's nothing included in John that, that doesn't have meaning. John's inclusion of these details about Jesus arriving outside of Bethany and, and, and talking about these things is, first of all, one, to show us that this miracle, this sign, is a big one. And it's going to get a lot of attention. The Jews in Jerusalem are going to hear about it. The leaders in Jerusalem are going to hear about it. The crowds in Jerusalem are going to hear about it. This is a high-profile sign. Not up in Galilee where they may or may not have caught wind. This is going to be in their face. High-profile. So number two, Lazarus is not just really sick. That's why we include the detail about being dead for four days. He was in the tomb. So this wasn't like the other resurrection miracles where he was raised relatively quickly. This has been after several days days. It was an unmistakable, miraculous resurrection. So high profile nature and length of time since death. You combine those together and it makes this sign impossible to ignore. This is a big one and we're going to see the implications of that play out in the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12. In verse 20 it talks about the two sisters. They react differently to Jesus' arrival. Martha went out to meet Jesus while Mary stayed inside. And it said Mary was seated in the house. Sitting was the posture of mourning. If you remember, if you were here during our journey through the book of Job, what was, what was the first thing that Job's three friends did when they arrived? Before they said anything. Do you remember? They sat on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. They didn't say anything, they just sat. And that was their way of coming alongside and showing that they were going to participate in the mourning of of Job for the loss of his family and for his condition. So these different responses from from Mary and Martha, they're, they're different. They're neither good nor bad, just different. Everyone mourns in their own way. The rest of this passage is divided up into three scenes, and we'll take each one. The first one is Jesus and Martha, the second one is Jesus and Mary, and then the last one is Jesus at the tomb. So let's walk through each of these scenes. Scene number one, Jesus and Martha. Here's the first thing Martha says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What do we make of that? Well, it sounds like she's lashing out a little bit. It sounds like a mild rebuke. It's kind of like, why didn't you come when we sent you? Why weren't you here? My brother's death was preventable, and you could have prevented it. So there's some belief. There, there's some belief here. She believes that Jesus could have healed Lazarus, but it's partway belief. She believed that, she believed that Jesus could have healed Lazarus if he had come in time, 
if he had been there. She must have somehow forgotten that Jesus does not be does not need to be in, in close physical proximity in order to heal someone. He just has to say the word. He can heal from a distance. But she was thinking, well, you know, if you'd been here, you could have done something. So that's partway belief. And then the second thing she says is, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now that's more partway belief. She believes on one hand, yes, Jesus, I'm glad you're here and I have full faith and confidence in you that you're going to do um, whatever it is you're going to do to make the best out of this situation. This Moving forward from this point, I have no doubt that, that you're going to do the right thing and make things as, as good as they can be. But it's also unbelief. She's saying, no, I believe you've been sent by God. I believe you've been, you deserve the title Son of God, but you're not really God yourself, right? Because you still need to ask God for permission, right? You're, you're like a really powerful, unique prophet that has to ask for God for things in prayer, and then God gives you the answer to that. And I have no doubt that God will answer your prayers. But it's not like you're, you're God. It's not like you have the power to heal yourself, right? That's partway belief. Jesus responds by saying, your brother will rise again. Now we know what he means because we know what's coming up next. She does not know what he means. She thinks Jesus is trying to console her with comforting words to ease her grief. So, so her response is, uh, well, yes, that's a really sweet thing for you to say. Thank you, Jesus. I, I really appreciate that. Yes, I do know that my brother will rise again at the general re- revelation or resurrection. Yes, um, I, I appreciate that. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Jesus responds by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So this is teaching and correction designed to propel Martha forward. He's trying to advance her faith. She's in partway belief and he wants to move her forward with this teaching. He's saying, I'm not just reminding you of some general resurrection teaching. I am the resurrection. I'm I'm not just showing you the way to life. I am life. I'm not just a a human prophet who, who asks God for things in prayer. I am God. I'm not just asking you to believe in sound doctrine. I'm asking you to believe in me. And then he checks for comprehension with a challenge question. Do you believe this? And her answer is good, not great. Her answer is more partway belief. It doesn't really match what Jesus asks her, does it? He asks, do you believe what I just said, that I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me will never die? Do you believe that? And she answers with, well, I believe you're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, whatever that means to Martha at the time, who's coming into the world. Maybe the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, maybe the promised, uh, prophesied uh, redeemer. So she, she kind of falls back on these safe things that, that her belief extends to and says, I believe these things. But she didn't say that she believed what Jesus was challenging her on. 
Martha believes, but this is as far as her belief could go at that point. It's partway belief. Verses 28 and 31, these are transition verses. They they move the narrative forward to the next scene, which is Mary and Jesus. So we're going to move forward. Um, there's, There's really not a whole lot to comment on on those transition verses. They give us a few details, and we could go into them, but we're, it's just not simply... Um, worth our time this morning. So let's move to the next scene. Verse 32, Jesus and Mary. This is scene two. So this is Mary, Martha's sister, Lazarus' sister. She comes out to Jesus. She falls at his feet. And the first thing that Mary says is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does that sound familiar? It is the exact same thing that Martha said. Exactly. Word for word. They didn't get together on this. They didn't pre-plan what they were going to say and say, okay, you hit him with this and I'll hit him. No. No. But this shows us that was first and foremost on both of the sisters' minds. She was saying, you know, if you'd been here, Lazarus would still be alive, right? You know that? It's kind of a mild rebuke. This has been stewing with them for four days. They sent word, he didn't come, their brother died, and it's been four days. Now Jesus shows up. Couldn't you have been here a little earlier, please? They're still respectful. They still believe in Jesus. But there's some emotion there. And like her sister, this is a mixture of belief and unbelief. Belief, she believed that Jesus could have prevented her brother from dying. But then unbelief, boy, I wish you'd been here sooner, because then you could have done something, but, you know, he's dead now, so so I, I guess you really can't do anything now, right? That's part of my belief. Verse 33, Jesus witnessed the weeping going on around him. Now, in the first century, even a poor family was expected to hire two flute players and one professional whaler. Okay, this is just the way it's done. We, we send flowers to a funeral. Uh, they hired professional mourners. That's just the way it was. Everybody did it. But it's not just the pros that are, that are wailing here. It's when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Mary and the rest of the Jews and, and Martha were, were carrying her on like, like unbelievers with no hope. They were, they were standing around. Remember, Jesus, who is the resurrection, who is life, was standing in their midst, and they're carrying around like, well, I, I guess this is the end. There's nothing that can be done now. We have no hope. And this causes Jesus to become... Verse 33, indignant. I know what it says. It says deeply moved. If you see, if you got an ESV, it has a footnote, number one, and then down below on the bottom of the page it says, or was indignant. Indignant can be translated as angry. It can be translated as outraged. But the ESV says deeply moved. Uh, New Living Translation says, a deep anger welled up within him. The reason most translations go with deeply moved or something like that, that is an attempt to soften the language. Because when we hear the phrase deeply moved, that's kind of like, 
Ah, so that deeply moved me. I'm, I'm deeply moved in my heart. It's kind of like a, mm, it matches mourning. Angry doesn't. Angry doesn't match mourning. Angry seems out of place for Jesus at a funeral for his friends. And that has biased translators to put in deeply moved. Uh, D.A. Carson, who's a a very well-known New Testament scholar, says there is no linguistic justification whatsoever for softening that from indignant, angry, outrage to deeply moved. In other words, there's nothing in the text that tells us to steer it away from that word. We need to go with that word. Jesus is angry. He's angry. And greatly troubled. Trouble could be translated as disturbed or agitated. So the text tells us how he's feeling. He's not sad. He's not mourning. He's angry and greatly disturbed. And that just seems out of place for us at a funeral for his friends. But that's what's going on. What is he angry about? Their partway belief. Belief is front and center in this passage. We're going to come back and hit that a minute in a minute later. But just for now... Belief. That's what this passage is about. Belief. They were not yet trusting in Jesus all the way. They were at partway belief. All they could do was invite Jesus to a time of mourning, to, to, to share in their mourning, and express their disappointment that he didn't get there a little bit sooner. He was angry over the fact that they were not recognizing who he was. All they could see was death Oh, no, Lazarus, he's dead, he's dead. Oh, Jesus, uh, come on over and mourn with us. We're, we're really not expecting too much from you right at this point, but just come on over and, and cry with us, okay? That's what he was angry about. He was not angry with them personally. He was angry with their partway belief. Their partway belief in him. Jesus, who is the Lord over life, the Lord over uh all things spiritual and the Lord of the resurrection, and they weren't, uh, they weren't believing. Now, as we know, resurrections are a pretty big part of God's redemptive plan. And so if they were going to believe all the way, they will need to start believing in the resurrection, starting with this one, moving to Jesus's, moving to everyone who follows Christ. In verse 34, he says, where have you laid him? Again, let's read this correctly in context. He's not saying, show me where the grave is so I can go over and and mourn personally and maybe lay a flower of remembrance down. No, he's saying, this is Nova. Where's the grave? Show me where he's at. He's about to raise him. And we we know what mood he's in. He's angry. This is Nova. Where's the grave? Show me the tomb. And then we come to verse 35. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. If you're looking for uh, Bible trivia, If you want to start memorizing scripture, you can start right here. Jesus wept. Boom. Done. Memorized. Real easy. Jesus wept. Now, remember at the beginning I said we were going to demystify this verse. So let's take a short time out. Let's let's step out of the flow of this this passage just for a minute. Let's address this issue and then we'll, we'll get back into it. This is one of those times where it's helpful to see what it is. It's not so we can see what it is. So first, let's go through the three things, the the three reasons that are false for why Jesus is weeping. Okay, so these are are things that have been proposed, but, but it's not it. This is not why Jesus is weeping. Number one, 
Jesus is not crying because he's really, really sad that his friend died. That's where a lot of people go. That's where the Jews standing around. When, when have the Jewish leaders or anybody watching Jesus, when have they gotten it right? In the book of John. No, but both of those reactions are wrong. We'll look at them in just a minute. But it's not because, they, they say, see how he loved him. That's not it. He's not emotionally overcome with the death of his friend. Uh, the answer to this is pretty, ser- pretty simple. He knows he's about to raise him from the dead. How would Jesus be overcome with grief over losing someone when he really isn't lost? In, in a matter of minutes, Lazarus is going to be walking around fine, perfectly healthy, nothing wrong at all. Jesus is not upset that he's gone forever. He's not gone forever. He, that's, that can't be it. And remember, back in verse 14 of this chapter, he was glad that he wasn't there. He rejoiced that Lazarus was going to be in the tomb. It's hard to reconcile that with, with the idea that he was deeply, deeply sad at the loss of his friend. So that's not it. Number two, it's been proposed that Jesus was saddened because of the presence, the general presence of sin, sickness, and death in this world and how it negatively impacted Martha and Mary and the rest of the, the people there. Jesus is not crying over the fact that death brings so much pain to people because their pain was about to be turned into unspeakable joy. He knew they had to go through this, but it was just moments later that they would experience something that we'll probably never even get close to on this side of glory of just unspeakable, remarkable praise and glory, just being overcome with the power of God and being reunited with their loved one. Unbelievable. That's not it. In order to make that interpretation work, we have to make Jesus reactive. We have to make Jesus into someone who shows up and and sees the the pain and the crying and so much hurt that the presence of sin and death brings into the world that the raising of Lazarus becomes a response. It's almost like Jesus says, you know what? Not today. I'm going to bring him back to life and I'm going to end all this pain. That can't be it. This was a planned sign. He's known for days that he's going to be raising Lazarus from the dead. It was not a spontaneous reaction to witnessing the power and presence of sin and death. What he is angry about is their partway faith. That's that's where the text drives us. One New Testament scholar says, quote, those around him regard darkness and death as being in control of the situation and the strain upon him finds expression in tears, end quote. Jesus is, it says, greatly disturbed at seeing some of his closest friends, some of his closest disciples carrying on like unbelievers with no hope, carrying on without belief in him that he can do anything. They're not expecting anything from him. They underestimated Jesus, and that's what he is crying about. And finally, number three, this is the third reason why he's not crying. Jesus wasn't really that sad, but he cried to relate to those around him and to display his humanity. He wanted to show everyone that he had feelings and that he wasn't just some sort of cyborg. Uh, I'm like you. I I can cry. I'm I'm fully human and I want to show you that. So even though I'm not personally sad, 
I'm going to join you and, and I'm going to display that for your benefit. That's been proposed. The answer to that one is also very simple. That would be called deceit. That would be Jesus faking something. That would be Jesus pretending to, to feel something that he really didn't. And that would be a form of lying. It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for Jesus to act deceitfully. There is no way he would put on a show and pretend to, to, to show something that wasn't real. That's a form of deceit. And that just is impossible. And secondly, this passage isn't about human emotion or um, displaying feelings or Jesus attempting to relate to people. That's not what it's about. It's about belief. Belief is front and center in this passage. So it's not any of those three things. So what is it? Why was Jesus weeping in John 11.35? It was because of their partway belief. It was because they weren't believing all the way. That's why Jesus was crying. And then we see some, some of the mixed reactions. Oh, look at him cry. They must have been really good friends. No. Others were critical. He healed a blind man. You think he could have showed up on time here. The possibility that Jesus knew what he was doing didn't even occur to them. They were, they were just, you know, throwing darts blindly at, at what they thought was going on. So that's why Jesus cried. Let's step back into the flow with scene number three, Jesus at the tomb. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved, once again, we should read that angry, indignant, outraged, he's still angry, still angry from their partway belief, he issues a command, verse 39, take away the stone. If you've been with us here at Peace for any length of time, then you've heard me talk about this before, there's something in the Bible called command fulfillment formula. And it's all over in scripture. And it's there to show us the correct response to God's word. When God speaks something, when God says something, when God reveals something in his written word, we are to obey immediately, precisely, accurately, without delay, without altering it, exactly as he told us. That's what God wants when he speaks and commands. Uh, we see this in the Old Testament where God said to Abraham, do this. And then in the very next verse, it says, and Abraham did that. Or God told Moses to do this. Moses did that. It's in the New Testament too. If you remember Matthew 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph at night and said, arise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt. And in the very next verse, it says, so Joseph arose, he took the child and his mother and fled to Egypt. Command fulfillment. We've even seen it in John. Remember John chapter 9. The man born blind? Jesus issued a command. Go and wash. The very next verse, it says, he went and washed. That's command fulfillment. Okay, boom, boom. Immediately. What do we see here? Take away the stone. Command. Oops. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. It's not command fulfillment, it's command protest. And we thought Jesus was angry already. Mary, or excuse me, Martha begins to explain to the Son of God why she thinks his command is a bad idea. She mentions the length of time, the odor, dead for four days. 
Well, he answers her, and not gently, he says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, kids, what happens when mom and dad address you, and they get your attention, and they start off by saying, Didn't I tell you? Does that mean they're happy with you? No, they're upset, because they're having to repeat themselves. And they are trying to train you to listen and obey and do things the first time you're told. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, there's that word again, you would see the glory of God? If you believed. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus prays to the Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Who's standing around? Excuse me, who's standing around? This is for the people standing around that they would believe. Martha, Mary, the disciples, other Jews. In verses 43 and 44, Jesus commands Lazarus to come out with a loud voice, and he does. Command fulfillment. Lazarus come out, the man who had died came out. You see that? There it is. Boom, boom. Even dead men obey the voice of Christ. Unbind him and let him go. I want us to see how this sign functions in, in the book of John. This is the last of seven signs given to us in the Gospel of John. All signs are designed to point people to Christ so they believe in him. They're designed to reveal the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, They're called signs in the text. That's how we know they're called. They're signs. And they're also there to authenticate Jesus as the Son of God and the authorized sent one from God. That's the purpose. And then specifically, each sign also represents something else spiritually. Specifically, the raising of Lazarus points to Jesus being the Son of God with power over life and death. Jesus as the Son of God who has the power to give life, to raise people back from the dead, Jesus has the power to give physical life. That means he also has the power to give spiritual life. That's what that sign is is pointing to. Jesus is able to raise people to spiritual life. And not only does this resurrection uh, of, of Lazarus point to those things, but it also points to our resurrection. Just as Lazarus, who was a believer, was raised from the tomb, so also we are going to be physically raised from the tomb. It's also designed to get them to start thinking resurrection. Their detail that we kind of glossed over moments before, but it says when he arrived at the tomb, it had a stone in front of it. That's how Jesus' tomb was. It's all designed to point to belief in Christ and specifically that he is the one that gives spiritual life. And then once we're alive in Christ, we are to take off the grave clothes of sin and walk freely in the spirit of Christ. But I also want us to see how this passage is centered on believing. I think it's worthwhile to, to review these. John eleven fifteen, And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. John eleven twenty eight 
25 and 26, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John eleven forty. did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? John eleven forty two. I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. It is all over the place. It seems like every time, almost every time Jesus opens his mouth, he's talking about believe, believe, believe. So our application this morning is going to be about, you guessed it, belief. It's going to be about belief. Number one, all the way belief is necessary for salvation. If, if someone believes that Jesus is a good teacher or the supreme example of what, what people should be like, you know, a, a real example of what it looks like to, to live rightly, or maybe an interesting figure in, in history, but, but that nobody really knows you know, for sure what he said or did. Or if someone believes that Jesus is a good man who did good things and started a good religion, Christianity, if that's as far as someone's belief in Christ goes, then they're going to find out that their belief comes up short. They're going to start to reel in that winch and they're not going to go anywhere. They're not attached to Christ. So their belief is useless. Unless you wrap the cable of your life around the anchor point of the cross, you're never going to become unstuck from the penalty of sin. You're not going to go home at the end of the day. No one can pull themselves out. No one can extricate themselves out from from the condemnation and and penalty of of sin. No one can escape the wrath of God that remains on them outside of Jesus Christ. There is no recovery from belief that does not go all the way to Jesus Christ. So I would ask anyone here this morning who, who might be, by their own admission, just kind of not sure, you know, maybe they're just kind of walking around this Jesus church thing and just kind of kicking the tires and say, well, you know, maybe I'm I'm thinking about it. I would ask you, does your belief go all the way to Jesus Christ? Does it go to a whole life, lifelong commitment to the Son of God? He's the only one that has spiritual life. He's the only one that can forgive sins. Because you can be in the company of believers and not be in Christ. You can be in church and still not be in Christ. You you can be in his word and not be in Christ. God has shown us the way to be saved and that way is narrow. It is by repenting and believing in Jesus. So I would ask that you would turn from your sin, repent of it, turn to Jesus Christ, start believing and never stop. Join yourself to his church. God promises that whoever believes in Jesus will be forgiven. They will be declared righteous in his sight. They will be washed. They will be cleansed. And they will be given new life in Christ. New life that can never be taken away. An abundant life. A purposeful life. A life free from from the guilt and and the penalty of sin. But you have to go all the way. You can't stop at partway belief. 
and you can't even stop at almost all the way belief, you've got to tie your cable around the cross. So number one, all the way belief is necessary for salvation. Number two, Jesus wants those that are his to believe all the way. So not only is all the way belief necessary for salvation, but Christ wants those who are saved to believe all the way. Now let me explain what I mean by that. If we look back at this passage and we see Jesus speaking, look at verse 15 when he says, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Who's the you there? His disciples. And then when he prays to the Father, he says, on account of the people standing around. And we said, who is that? Mary, Martha, the disciples, some other Jews. So he's speaking to his closest disciples and friends who already believe in him. And yet he's saying, I'm doing this so that they they may believe. What did Jesus mean when he said he wanted his disciples to believe? Or what did Jesus mean when he said he wanted believers to believe? It means he wanted his disciples to keep advancing in their belief. He wanted them to go all the way. You see, there was, they were being given new revelation about the Son of God. They were being given new light. And Jesus wanted them to grasp hold of that light. Grasp hold of that new revelation. Don't stay where you're at. Move forward. Advance. Keep going. Believe all the way. Don't stay where you're at. Or to put it another way, Jesus didn't want them to camp out on partial knowledge about the Son of God. He didn't want them to just believe some things about him, or even a lot of things about him. He wanted them to believe everything that he revealed about him. All the way. He wanted them to believe all the way. That's what that means. And Jesus still wants his followers to believe all the way. Let's bring in a a cross-reference from Colossians. This is the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. So this is believers he's talking to. He says, And so from the day we heard that that you became believers, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It pleases the Lord, it pleases Jesus, when his followers advance, increase, are filled with knowledge of God and his revealed will. So believers believing all the way means that believers are on a steady upward progression in their knowledge of God, in his uh, word, and in his revealed will for their life. They're, They're moving forward. They're advancing. They're not standing still. They're walking towards Christ. They don't have it in park. They have it in drive. They have their foot on the gas. They're moving. So for believers here this morning, the question for you is this. Is this true in your life? Are you believing all the way? Are you advancing? Is there a steady progression? Are you growing in your understanding of Christ and the doctrines of grace? Are you wanting to to increase in the application of of God's revealed will for your life? Is that you? Or not? 
I would say some of you are opening your Bibles daily. Some of you are on a Bible reading plan. I know you are. And you're, you're regularly reading God's Word, taking it in. Some of you are memorizing Scripture. You, you've got a plan. Some of you are going to men's Bible study or women's Bible study or Sunday school classes. Some of you are reading books on theology and, and doctrine or specific areas of, of biblical teaching. Some of you are in a small group and are, are sharpening one another by, by talking about the things of God and asking hard questions. Some of you are taking online classes. I know you are. Sometimes maybe even seminary level classes because you want to advance your knowledge and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are doing a combination of these things. And to you, I want to say, be encouraged. You know, so often in the church, it's easy to feel beat up. If, you, if this is you, if you're doing these things, know that you are in the center of God's will for your life. In terms of, of knowing God's will, advancing your belief, know that this is, you are the command fulfillment, you are fulfilling the command in Colossians. You are doing it. Keep going. Praise God for you. You're such an encouragement to, to one another, to your brothers and sisters. You're an encouragement to your children. Mm. You're, you're, an you're an encouragement to the rest of the body. You know, what, what the majority of the body of a local church does, that, that catches like fire. If the majority of the church is just kind of lackadaisical and shows up to church when it suits them and doesn't really get that involved, everybody else looks around and says, I guess this is kind of how it's done. But if the church is on fire, if they're looking, hey, what's, what's going on for adult Sunday school class this fall? Oh, that looks good. Or, oh, hey, have you tried this? Or, I mean, that catches too. People around say, oh, okay, the, all right. They take it serious here. We're, we're going to do this. I want to do that too. Praise God for you. Keep going. You are actively obeying the commands of Christ. Well done. However, some of you are not doing those things. Some of you rarely open your Bible on a regular basis. Some of you don't attend men's study or women's study or a Sunday school class. Some of you don't do any outside independent reading. Some of you are not in a small group and have never taken a class like that. And to you, I want to say this. You are a believer. You, you, have, you have tied your cable around the cross. You are in Christ. Praise God. But to this, I want to challenge you. If this is you, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to take one step forward? Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to take one step and advance your belief? And we can't use the excuse, I'm too busy. You've got to take that off the table. We're all busy. It doesn't matter if you're, you're in the peak earning years and you, you, you've got your shoulder to the grindstone and you're putting in X number of hours a week. Or if you're a home managing the household, you're raising the kids. Or if you're a student, or a, we're all busy. So let's take that off the table. Is there any legitimate reason why you wouldn't, as a believer, want to take one step forward? It was mentioned earlier, on the 10th, we're going to have small group signups. We've got, we've got a couple of different quality Sunday school class offerings. There's always a way to take a step forward. Because it should be clear from this passage, Jesus wants us to go all the way. If you're a believer, and you're 
attached to the anchor point of Jesus Christ on the cross, you've got all the way belief. Praise God. Now, believe all the way. Take a step forward and never stop advancing your belief. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came to to save us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that he completed the work on the cross so that we can be saved. And we also thank you that you have revealed your will for us, and that is to, to never remain complacent, to, to never stagnate, to never assume that you don't ask or require or command anything from us other than to simply go through the motions. Father, we see that it's important to you that that we keep filling, increasing, moving forward. And we pray that you would give us the grace and the ability to do that and never stop. In Jesus' name, amen.